Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 23, Deuteronomy chapters 17 and 18. Now we've been discussing uh, the section of Deuteronomy 17 that dealt with God's boundaries and limitations on Israel's civil and religious authorities. And one of the chief principles behind it is that in God's economy, there is no separation of church and state, so to speak. I'll not debate the U.S. decision to go that route, except to say that this is at the bottom of what ails us as a nation now. Basically, our government has decided that God's ways are fine for what goes on within the walls of a synagogue or a church, but that they're to have no bearing at all anywhere else in our lives, our communities, our schools, our government. I wonder, have we actually reached a point whereby we are comfortable now with that philosophy and we just passively accept it? Do we effectively live our lives as though God makes a distinction between what we think and do while we're in a religious service versus what we think and what we do in every other facet of our existence, even though if confronted with it, we deny it? Here in Deuteronomy, the Lord makes it clear that Israel's leaders of every kind, no exceptions, are to first and foremost obey him. The leaders should, above all else, adhere to the Lord's laws and commands so that things will go well with them, with the people they govern in Israel, Israelite society in general. Let's reread a portion of Deuteronomy 17. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17, And we're going to start reading at verse 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 216. We're going to start reading at verse 8. If a case comes before you at your city gate, which is too difficult for you to judge, concerning bloodshed, civil suit, personal injury, or any other controversial issue, you are to get up and go to the place which Adonai your God will choose. And you will appear before the priests who are Levites and the judge in office at that time. Seek their opinion. They will render a verdict for you. You will then act according to what they have told you there in that place, which Adonai will choose. And you are to take care to act according to all of their instructions. In accordance with the Torah they teach you, you are to carry out the judgments they render. Not turning aside to the right or the left from the verdict they declare to you. Anyone presumptuous enough not to pay attention to the priest appointed there to serve Adonai your God or to the judge, that person must die. Thus you will exterminate such wickedness from Israel. All the people will hear about it and be afraid to continue acting presumptuously. When you have entered the land Adonai your God is giving, you have taken possession of it and are living there, you may say, I want to have a king over me, like all the other nations around me. In that event, you must appoint as king the one whom Adonai your God will choose. He must be one of your kinsmen. This king you appoint over you, 
You are forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who is not your kinsman. However, he is not to acquire many horses for himself or have the people return to Egypt to obtain more horses. Inasmuch as Adonai told you never to go back that way again. Likewise, he is not to acquire many wives for himself so that his heart will not turn away. He's not to acquire excessive quantities of gold and silver. When he has come to occupy the throne of his kingdom, he is to write a copy of his Torah for himself in a scroll from the one the priests and the Levites use. It is to remain with him. He is to read it every day as long as he lives so that he will learn to fear Adonai his God and keep all the words of his Torah and these laws and obey them so that he will not think he is better than his kinsmen so that he will not turn aside either to the right or the left from Adonai's mitzvot, his commands. In this way, he will prolong his own reign and that of his children in Israel. The first group of government leaders that we discussed was called Shoftim, judges. And they were usually tribal elders. And the purpose for their selection was to behave as a kind of lower court, handling matters within their own tribe about things that happened within their own tribal territory. An upper court was also established, and it was to consist primarily of Levites. Therefore, the place where these upper courts met were in the 48 Levitical cities scattered throughout the land. Now, these upper courts were not appeals courts. They were courts designed to handle matters that were too difficult or complex or beyond the scope of the lower courts. And since the Levites, and that part of the Levites who were the priests, were Israel's experts on the law of Moses, it's logical that if the laymen, the elders couldn't reach agreement on a case, it would be referred to those who were the recognized legal experts. The ordinance of God that establishes this legal structure also states that since this upper court, consisting primarily of Levites, is a federal court, so to speak, then it handles matters from or between members of various tribes and therefore the rulings were not to be questioned. And that anyone who refused to carry out the rulings was to be executed. Now here's a key in understanding the role of the judges. The typical ones, those who formed the lower courts, only dealt with matters concerning their own tribe. And while we get this mental picture of a judge sitting behind a bench ruling on legal issues. In fact, many of Israel's judges came to assume entirely different roles right, than those ascribed or possibly even envisioned here in Deuteronomy. Samson, for instance, he of superhuman strength, he acted as a protector of his people and as an instrument of God's wrath upon the Philistines. He certainly did not sit as an arbitrator of legal matters among his tribe of Dan. Now the next class of governmental leaders that Moses discussed here in Deuteronomy was kings. 
it would be nearly 300 years after the time of Moses before Israel actually had its first king. So the the, the, um, instructions regarding the boundaries and the limitations around what an Israelite king should be and what he could and could not do, this looked well into the future. And we must grasp that what this is is both knowledge of the future and a kind of concession on God's part. That is, he foreknew that Israel would eventually want to be more like their neighbors than to be seen as set apart and unique. So, he makes a provision for Israel to have an earthly king because the Hebrews were in time going to demand it. You know, it's not at all unlike circumstances that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was dealing with in his thoughts concerning divorce. It's not that God ordains divorce. It's that in his foreknowledge and in his grace, he knows that fallen man is going to go this route. So he sets up procedures and boundaries to deal with it as fairly as can be done on this earth. God is in no way setting up parameters of a kingship because he accepts the governing philosophy of a man ruling his people as their king. He is doing it because in time Israel will, by their own folly, insist that a human king be appointed over them. And indeed, that's exactly what eventually happened. Well, Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17, speaks of the limitations that God puts upon Israel's future king or kings in three different contexts. That is, three different spheres of influence that every king has sway over are covered. The military, the political, and the economic. And the first injunction is that this king, when Israel gets a king, he's not to amass too many horses. And since the finest and most well-trained horses came from Egypt in that era, Israel would be tempted to rebuild ties with their former slave master in order to get these fine animals. Now, there is also a deeper sense of instruction contained in this this admonition. It is that Israel's that, that for Israel's leadership to create a relationship of convenience or of personal benefit with an enemy of God is not something that ought to be pursued by God's redeemed. Today, this admonition of God is not only ignored by modern Israel and the church, it is considered wrong not to seek after these kinds of relationships. There are many logical reasons why this practice of worshipers of 
Yehovah commingling and even striking up an alliance with God's enemies is dangerous. But the only reason that really ought to drive us to obey is that God has prohibited it. That's all we need to know. When the church buddies up to and validates Islam in so-called love and peace, that is a direct violation of this commandment. When Israel trades with its sworn enemies and even gives them political concessions, that is a direct violation of this commandment. You know, it's not that the church ought to go around killing Muslims or even necessarily shunning them. It's that whatever relationship is established ought to be all about evangelizing people who worship a false god. Never about tolerance or appeasement or personal gain or legitimizing that which is aberrant to Yehovah. It's not that Israel ought to find reasons to aggravate its neighbors or fight with them. It's that whatever relations Israel has with their neighbors, it's not to be for Israel to try to be more like them or to give up any portion of their unique relationship with God and God's land for the sake of geopolitical stability. Or to essentially give up their set-apart status merely to join the world's League of Nations to partake of all the wealth. Now further, there is an interesting side comment here in these verses that Israel is not to turn to Egypt for more horses because, it says, you must not go back that way again. You know, what's the name of that old song? You can never go back that way again. They actually made a song. I'm sure you all recognize that too. No, I'm not going to attempt it. Lots of interesting exegesis has come from this passage, although its intent's not thoroughly agreed upon. But keep in mind that this is a warning to any future Israelite king. And at the least it is that Israel is not to turn to their former masters for help or sustenance. Israel is not necessarily to be at war with Egypt, but neither are are they to ally themselves to Egypt or become dependent on Egypt for items Israel's kings might deem important for himself. I think the wisdom of this and its point is probably best expressed in the God principle that prohibits unequal yoking or an illicit mixture. What have the people of God got to do with Egypt? Answer, nothing. You know, it's ironic that in the 21st century, the very same people, Islam, 
that the Western world is at war with are the same ones we have made ourselves dependent upon for a key element of our economy and our military. You know, we've made a pact with the devil, so to speak. And although it's taken a while, the debts come due. What began as a Western debate on oil as it relates to dealing with Islam has now turned to a debate very recently on whether or not it is better to appease them than to continue to hold on to our traditional Judeo-Christian values which they want to eradicate. That's what it's all coming down to now. Recently, the new approach to this seemingly intractable problem is essentially to remove religion as an issue altogether by reforming the world as a universal, secular, humanist society that demands tolerance of all gods and upholds none. I'm afraid that everything that I see and that the Bible prophesies is that appeasement and surrender is well underway. Interestingly, it's this appeasement and surrender that leads to Armageddon. Although the world is doing everything it humanly can to prevent it, that's what's going to happen. This is what that verse of not going back that way is primarily about. Because if Israel's kings ever start looking to the same people who view them as no more than escaped slaves... And they look to them for friendship. And they look to them as a source of strategic military hardware or economic benefit. The price will be to compromise or even abandon God's principles in order to achieve it. And of course, this is exactly what the West as a whole and unfortunately even a great portion of the church is in the process of doing as we speak. In Moses' day, horses were for one primary purpose, to pull chariots. And chariots were used for two things, as limos for the king and his court, but more importantly, they were key armaments for ancient warfare. The more chariots a king had in his arsenal, the more formidable he was in battle. The kings of Israel were instructed to place their trust in Yehovah, not in military armaments. Their power was to be their faith in the God of Israel, not in advanced weaponry. Even so, God does not speak against Israel being well armed and having a substantial military. Rather, it is that their hopes of victory are in the Lord, and thus obedience to him is the key to their survival. And the source of their power and their ability to survive certainly shouldn't come from a people, Egypt, who could pull the plug on that power source anytime they felt like it. Further, as has always always been, kings who taste great power are jealous to keep it. And so they often turn their military against their own people. 
in order to maintain that power. Yehovah does not want Israel's kings to be so strong and so arrogant as to be impervious to the will of the civilian population. Now, the command that Israel's kings must not have many wives centers around a uniquely Middle Eastern societal unit called a harem. Now, Westerners tend to think of a harem as simply a pleasure palace full of beautiful women for use by the king and his court. That's far from reality. Political power in the Bible era came as much from forming strong alliances as it did from exercising military might. And those alliances almost always involved intermarriage between the families of the various kings that were involved. See, we we missed the point of the infamous story of King Solomon and the enormous number of wives and concubines in his harem because the idea that seems to be prevalent among the church is that Solomon was on some level basically just a self-indulgent sex maniac. Rather, the biblical story was meant to brag about the immense number of alliances that Solomon had created throughout the region and how very wrong-minded it was for him to do that. Harems were not large palaces that were full only of women. It was where the children of these women also resided. For a king to disgrace or show disrespect to one of the wives among his harem was tantamount to an international incident. It could even bring about war with the family that wife represented. So the warning that comes that a king's heart might go astray should he have a large harem means that this king might be tempted to be focused more on keeping and pleasing his wives and the alliances that they represent and keeping them satisfied rather than paying attention to God's people and God's commands. Let me also remind you that where it says his heart might go astray, referring to the king's heart, it was actually referring to his mind. That's what it meant. His intellect, what interested him, what he felt was important. Not his emotions, or that his love and affection towards his harem would override his common sense. And finally, as a warning for the king, not to amass personal fortune on the backs of his subjects. And how would a king go about doing that? Taxes. It's never changed. By By heavily taxing his people and by confiscating wealth from those smaller nations and city-states he has conquered and are under his control, he would amass his own wealth. While all of that was standard operating procedure for Canaan's kings, 
The Israelite king was to only gather wealth for the good of his nation in order to fund a proper military, care for the neediest of the society, and for national building projects like roads that truly benefited the people on a, on a corporate level. The biblical reality is that the story of King David's son Solomon is told in a fashion meant to highlight that he violated all these provisions of the law. He was to abstain from an overly large military, but he built a huge one. He was to avoid having many wives in the alliances represented, and he had the biggest ever. And he wasn't supposed to store up wealth for himself, and he was fabulously wealthy. Even with Israel having a king, the law we are reading in Deuteronomy was designed to retain God as the ultimate king of Israel, and the human king was simply to operate as God's representative on earth, establishing the Father's will, even though much more imperfectly than if Israel had never insisted on having a human king. Now, it's difficult in a short period of time like we have to explain why God's definition of an earthly king as ordained in Deuteronomy is so opposite of mankind's definition of a king. But suffice it to say that earthly kings typically typically created the laws for their people and just as typically exempted themselves from their own laws. And since Israel's laws came from God, then Israel's kings were to be as much under Jehovah's laws as was any other Hebrew citizen. From verse 18 of chapter 17 to the end is one of the most interesting instructions and it brings a lump to my throat every time I read it. Upon his selection, the first duty of a new king is to borrow the original Torah scrolls from the priests of Israel and then to write a copy of that document for himself. The king is not to have a scribe make a copy for him. He is to take whatever time is needed to write it word for word and then keep it close by his side as that instrument that governs his life and is the law of the land for governing the people who look to him for leadership. Now there is only one detailed narrative of the coronation of an Israelite king in all the Bible. And interestingly, it was of a very young boy, Yoash, in 2 Kings 11. Yoash was only seven years old when he became the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. This is well worth taking a few minutes to to read for a whole number of reasons. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 11 and we're going to read about 16 verses. 2 Kings chapter 11.
And that's page 414 in the Complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read verses um, 1 through 16. When Ataliah, the mother of Achishah, saw that her son was dead, she set about destroying the entire royal family. But Yehosheva, the daughter of King Yoram, sister of uh, Ahaziah, took Yoash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the princes who were being slaughtered. She took him and his nurse, sequestered them in a bedroom, and hid them from Ataliah so that he wasn't killed. He remained hidden with his nurse in the house of Adonai for six years, and during this time, Ataliah ruled the land. In the seventh year, uh, Yehoiada summoned the captains of uh, hundred-man platoons of both the Kari and the guard, and he brought them into the house of Adonai and made agreement with them and had them swear to it in the house of Adonai. And then he showed them the king's son and gave them this instruction. Here is what you are to do. Of you who come on duty on Shabbat, a third guards the royal palace, a third is at the sewer gate, and a third is at the gate behind the guards. The first third is to continue guarding the palace and serve as a barrier while the other two groups of you who come on duty on Shabbat will guard the house of Adonai where the king is. You are to surround the king, each man with his weapons in his hand. Anyone who penetrates the ranks is to be killed. Stay with that king whenever he leaves or enters. The captains of over hundreds did exactly as Yehoiada the Kohen ordered. Each took his men, those coming on duty on the Sabbath, those going off duty on the Sabbath, and came to Yehoiada the, the uh, priest. And the priest issued to the captains of hundreds the spears and the shields that had been King David's and were kept in the house of Adonai. The guards then took positions, each man with his weapons in his hand, from the right side of the house to the left, alongside the altar, alongside the exterior of the house, and around the king. Then he brought out the king's son, crowned him, gave him a copy of the testimony, and thus made him king. They anointed him. They clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! And when Ataliah heard the shouting of the guard and the people, she entered the house of Adonai where the people were, looked, and saw the king standing there on the platform in keeping with the rule, with the leaders and trumpeters next to the king. All the people of the land were celebrating and blowing their trumpets, and at this, Ataliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Yehoiada, the priest, ordered the captains of hundreds, the army officers, escort her out past the ranks of the guards, but anyone who follows her, kill with the sword. For the priest had said she must not be put to death in the house of Adonai. So they took her by force, led her through the horse's entry to the royal palace, and there she was put to death. Now, here's why I read this to you. First we see that the Hebrews by this time had become just like their pagan neighbors when it came to the attributes of a king and then how that king would come into power. We see secrecy. We see a a power struggle. We see a personal agenda. We see the deaths of the rivals. 
Second, we see that as always happens when a king comes to power, instead of the king serving the people, the king quickly turned to making the people his servants. What possible wisdom and strength of leadership could a seven-year-old child offer? None. It was his parents. It was those who wanted to manipulate this boy for their own personal power and gain who were actually in control of Israel. Third, notice that the army was under the control of the ruling family. And it had become the army's job number one to keep the king and his family safe from his own people. Fourth, also notice the rather fleeting mention in verse 12 of giving the king a copy of the testimony, meaning the law, the Torah. This was supposed to happen not as mere symbolism, as part of a coronation ceremony, but rather as something the king was to do in earnest after he was put into power. What was a seven-year-old going to do with the Torah? He had no ability to copy them, let alone to carry out the justice they contained. See, this was all just crass pomp and ceremony. It was a hollow gesture that had no real meaning. By this time, this dealing with the Torah scrolls and the way they did was something they did as a tradition. And probably they didn't even remember why they did it. Yet later, interestingly, we will read as this young king grew older and he did apparently take the Torah seriously and he turned to it for wisdom. On the other hand, he still ruled much like a typical Middle Eastern king. He even gave away, we'll find out in later chapters, some of the temple's sacred treasures in order to make peace with an Assyrian king. And then he was later murdered by his own servants. I can tell you, as one who manuscripts every lesson I've ever taught, that the act of fully writing something out has a mysterious component to it that allows one to remember it better and to contemplate it deeper. Back in the day before the new progressive teaching methods that have made reading, writing, and math secondary to learning secular human social agendas, like tolerance and diversity and anything goes sexuality, repetitive writing was used to facilitate memory and retention. It works. Here in Deuteronomy, the Lord orders the kings of Israel to employ muscle memory, if you would, for the purpose of drinking in deeply and never forgetting the Lord's commands upon the king and the laws that he's to enforce upon those that he serves. Few of Israel's kings 
ever paid these laws any heed. Let's move on to chapter 18 of uh, Deuteronomy. Chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. It's amazing how all this feels so familiar to us, isn't it? The Kohanim, who are Levites, and indeed the whole tribe of Levi, is not to have a share or an inheritance with Israel. Instead, their support will come from the food offered by fire to Adonai and from whatever else becomes his. They will have no inheritance with their brothers because Adonai is their inheritance, as he has said to them. The Kohanim, the priests, will have the right to receive from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether ox or sheep, the shoulder, the jowls, and the stomach. You will also give him the first fruits of your grain, new wine, olive oil, and the first of the fleece of your sheep. For Adonai, your God, has chosen him from all your tribes to stand and serve in the name of Adonai, him and his sons forever. If a Levite from one of your towns, anywhere in Israel, where he is living, comes, highly motivated to the place which Adonai will choose, then he will serve there in the name of Adonai, his God, just like his kinsmen, the Levites who stand and serve in the presence of Adonai. Such a Levite will receive the same share as they do, in addition to what he may receive from selling his inherited ancestral property. When you enter the land of Adonai your God is giving you, you are not to learn how to follow the abominable practice of those, practices of those nations. They must not be found among you, anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through fire, or a diviner, a soothsayer, an enchanter, a sorcerer, a spellcaster, a consulter of ghosts or spirits, or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is detestable to Adonai, and because of these abominations, Adonai your God is driving them out ahead of you. You must be wholehearted with Adonai, your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, they listen to soothsayers and diviners. But you, Adonai, your God, doesn't allow you to do this. Adonai will raise up for you a prophet like me from among yourselves, from among your own kinsmen. You're to pay attention to him. Just as when you were assembled at Horeb and requested Adonai, your God, don't let me hear the voice of Adonai, my God, anymore. Or let me see this great fire ever again. If I do, I'll die. On that occasion, Adonai said to me, they are right in what they are saying. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their kinsmen. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I order him. Whoever doesn't listen to my words, which he will speak in my name, will have to account for himself to me. But if a prophet presumptuously speaks a word in my name, which I didn't order him to say, or if he speaks in the name of other gods, then that prophet must die. You may be wondering, how are we to know if a word has not been spoken by Adonai? When a prophet speaks in the name of Adonai and the prediction does not come true, that is, the word is not fulfilled, then Adonai did not speak that word. The prophet who said it 
spoke presumptuously. You have nothing to fear from him. Now, the previous chapter outlined the general boundaries and limitations for two of the four classes of government leaders of Israel, judges and kings. This chapter now does the same for the remaining two classes, priests and prophets. Now, verse 1 begins with the matter of the priests and reiterates that the official group of priests of Israel comes only from the tribe of Levi. It is noteworthy that since Exodus and since the establishment of the priesthood, the phrase Levitical priests is often included when matters concerning the clergy of Israel are raised. The reason is as simple on the one hand for saying it this way as it is complex on the other. It is simple because while God has declared that only one tribe, Levi, is to provide God's authorized servants and only one clan within that tribe, Aaron's clan, is to provide the priests, this was not something that the other tribes of Israel found so easy to accept. It was the norm for most other Middle Eastern cultures of that era for the king to choose the high priest. And then the highest priest would usually choose his lesser priests. And the new king usually meant a whole new batch of priests. And what families these priests came from certainly had a role in their selection, but it was far more a matter of political and therefore economic influence rather than some long-established hereditary right to that position that mattered. Now remember, until the law was given on Mount Sinai, there was no official priesthood for the Hebrews. And certainly no priestly tribe had yet been appointed. Rather, the firstborns from each family, from every tribe, tended to behave as sort of the family priest. This was a special status that was, that was relished by the firstborn of each family who held it. So when Moses told the twelve tribes that God has ordered this, this firstborn system to come to an end, to be replaced by members of the tribe of Levi, it was naturally meant with stiff resistance. Now, as we've talked about mankind's propensity to be in a never-ending search for loopholes, no matter what our faith or religion, the tribes of Israel did their best to punch holes in the laws concerning who could be priests. Therefore, we'll find the phrase Levitical priests used repeatedly because it makes abundantly clear that only Levites could form the authorized clergy of Israel. Now another reminder is contained within this first verse. It is that while the Levites were blessed with this higher than everybody else holiness status that was needed in order to be God's servants and priests, they also paid a very heavy price for that election. They were not given 
hereditary tribal land holdings in Israel as were all the other tribes. Now looking on a map from the days of Joshua and for several hundred years thereafter, we'll find fairly well-defined districts that were assigned as forever land holdings to the tribes. But nowhere is there such a thing as a territory of levy. Instead, the Levites were assigned 48 cities that were scattered all over Israel. And they were given the city and a few acres of pasture land that surrounded the city walls. Now it is this understanding of both the Levites' status and their lack of land that Israel is to respond by means of their corporate duty to economically support the tribe of Levi in exchange for the Levites' duties to the central sanctuary and the local courts and as being teachers of the law. The focus of verses 3 through 5 is to address the livelihood of the priests and the Levites and we're told that this livelihood is to come primarily from the sacrifices of firstlings as offered by members of the other 12 tribes, meaning the firstborn animal sacrifices and the first fruits from the fields and from the tree crops. And as we covered a long time ago, in Leviticus. There were many specific classifications of sacrifices, each of them with a different protocol and a different purpose. Therefore, back in verse 1, we're told that a group of sacrifices, typically rendered in English as fire offerings or something like that, is to be the source of sacrificial offerings from which the priests and Levites get to keep a portion of it for themselves. The Hebrew term for fire offering is ishishay. And it is not the same thing as the common term, the burnt offering, which is Olah. The Ishishay represents a series of sacrifices that are designated as those um, that while a portion of it is burned up on the altar, another portion can be used for food for the clergy. The Olah indicates a class of sacrifices that says that the entire animal is burned up and none of the meat can be used for food. Let me be clear about something because someone asked me about it last week and it was a good question. Was all the meat from the sacrificed animal placed on the altar fire and then some of it removed for food when it was cooked? The answer is no. That which was to be held back for the clergy and the worshiper wasn't put onto the altar fire. This wasn't like a backyard barbecue where the meat was cooked on a communal grill and everybody grabbed a a rib or a burger from it. The altar was not a place where meat was cooked It was the place where meat was destroyed. It had to be burned up completely until it was only ashes. Three specific parts 
of the various sacrificial animals when used as fire offerings were to be set aside as food for the priests and the Levites. The shoulder, meaning the upper part of the right foreleg from the shoulder to the knee, and then that part of the stomach of the animal, it's usually called the fourth stomach. And the clergy is also to receive the jowls and the tongue. Now, for most of us moderns, those last couple of items are considered as waste meat. But that was not the case in this era. Okay, These were good and desired portions of meat and not just in the Hebrew culture. And in verse 4 we're told that in addition to these meat portions, certain agricultural produce had to go to the priests. We talked on several occasions about first fruits offerings. Well, it was understood that all first fruits offerings were to go to the Levite clergy as their portions. And in addition to grain and fruit, this included olive oil, wine, wool from the sheep, along with a lot of other things. So starting in verse 6, we get this cryptic statement that a Levite can go from any settlement in the land of Israel to the place the Lord has chosen, and if that Levite desires, he can serve there. Here's what this is getting at. Most Levites lived in small towns and cities in remote areas of the various Israelite tribal territories. It was in one of these 48 Levitical towns where they would live and serve. Many Levites, though, desired to serve at the awesome central sanctuary, the seat of religious power, and not just some local village and deal with mundane everyday matters. Therefore, the Lord makes it clear that all Levites are to be given an opportunity to participate at the tabernacle, if they so desire. And later, we're going to see this interesting system of courses devised, whereby the Levites are organized into groups that come from various areas and are given their turn as in a unit, as a unit, rather, to officiate and serve at the temple in kind of a set rotation. And it says in verse 8 that they shall share and share alike from the offerings and the sacrifices. No one's to be excluded or somebody to get more than another. Next, chapter 18 discusses the all-important office of the prophet. And it's interesting that what has been set down as limitations and warnings for judges and kings not to abuse their power, and then the instruction for Israel to make provisions for priests and Levites, now turns to the duty of the people to pay very close heed to the prophets. And in this case, it is that all Israel is to listen to the prophets. Judges, kings, priests, and citizens at large are to all listen to the prophets. Now, prophets represented an official office within Israel. These people weren't self-appointed, per se. While priests were to observe and teach and in some cases adjudicate the written word of God, the Torah, the law, the prophets were more Moses-like, or maybe better, more Samuel-like. Okay. The prophets were those who had a legitimate line of communication directly with God. 
Since prophets are God's messengers to Israel and to Israel's leaders, then Israel is, of course, to obey the words of the prophets because they're God's words. Now, beginning in verse 9, a couple of scenarios are laid out for Israel. First is what Israel's attitude is to be towards the aberrant practices of the nations. That is, pagan practices as concerns trying to communicate with the gods. What pagans were usually doing in attempting to communicate with the spirit world was invariably the same thing. To find out about the future. I'm not sure that there is any greater temptation among men than to try to find some way, any way, to find out about what the future holds that might directly affect us. Nostradamus, Edgar Cayce, and many other psychics and fortune tellers are held in high regard in every part of the world because it seems everybody has a reason to want to know what lies ahead. If it isn't from him, we're not to seek it. God has authorized exactly one way for us to know about the future, and that's from him. Further, he says that the way he'll let us know what part of the future he deems he wants us to know is by means of his prophets and or his word. Verses 10 and 11 list a whole series of unauthorized means to attempt to get at the future. And it ranges from offering a child sacrifice to a god in exchange for a favor of information to divining, sorcery, and even attempting to talk with the spirits of the dead. Now, while this certainly is not intended to be an exhaustive list of every possible means of, of, of trying to apprehend the future, it does deal with the most common and well-known methods. And what is listed includes things like reading the entrails of animals, talking with ghosts, looking at patterns of oil or blood dripped into bowls of water, magic, and all kinds of stuff like that. And the Lord says that anyone who does these things is aberrant to him. Let's be clear. I mince any words. You know those cute little psychic hotlines advertised on TV? Tarot cards we can buy at Barnes and Noble. Palm readers that seem to be next to every tattoo parlor. You know, we can joke about these things, but those folks are very serious about what they do. It's no joke to them. And God's serious about it too. All I can tell you is that for God's people to even get close to dealing with folks who do such things, even as a lark, puts us into direct confrontation with Jehovah. It's not a very good idea. And the Lord says that this is the reason he's kicking those Canaanites out of their land and giving it to Israel. 
Therefore, Israel's not to do what the Canaanites have been doing in trying to divine the future. Rather, says the Lord in verse 15, he will raise up a prophet for Israel for this purpose. That when it's God's will that Israel should know certain things about the future, God will anoint a prophet to tell them. And in that quote, it's made crystal clear that when a prophet speaks, Israel's to obey. But it also says in verse 20, that if a prophet speaks something that God didn't tell him to speak, or speaks in the name of a false god, then that prophet has to be executed. This is a Hebrew prophet we're talking about here. So the first issue concerns pagan prophets, but now the issue is Israelite prophets. And the question becomes a sticky one that has bedeviled Judaism and Christianity forever. And it's this. How can we tell a false prophet from a true prophet of God when both are claiming to be loyal believers of the God of Israel and both are claiming that their words directly from God and therefore trustworthy. How do we, how do we discern this? The simplistic answer lies in verse 22. When a prophet says he's speaking a word from the Lord and it doesn't happen, then that person's a false prophet. They shouldn't be listened to any further. Yet sometimes the prophecy that is spoken is supposed to occur so far into the future. How will the people listening ever know which guy to believe? You know, this opens up quite quite a can of worms, as well as a pet peeve of mine. And it concerns those who make a habit of saying to others, I have a word from the Lord for you. In other words, they've declared themselves to be prophets. If you're tempted to put yourself in that position, or if you're convinced that the Lord has anointed you to be a prophet, then I just ask you to think long and hard about what we're reading here in Deuteronomy 18. God just doesn't leave any wiggle room here. If you truly have a message from him, it is infallible. It will happen, precisely as it said. If it doesn't happen, then it wasn't from him. It was from another source. And the prophet who spoke it is false. A prophet can speak the truth ten times and be right. But if he should get carried away, and say something one time that's not from God. The consequences for delivering a false message can be pretty severe, with the loss of credibility among his peers being the least of it. Even God's greatest prophets, the ones who have books of the Bible named after them, worried constantly about whether to tell people what they thought God was telling them. They often had doubts about whether they were correct 
They wondered whether or not what, the, what had actually entered their minds was of divine origin or not. Was it their imaginations working overtime? Was it worse? God's greatest prophets knew that being chosen as his prophet didn't mean they were incapable of being wrong. It only meant that God was incapable of being wrong. Therefore, all of God's prophets were by definition reluctant prophets. In every case, in every sense. In that they weren't seeking to be a prophet when God called them and they sure weren't entirely positive they wanted the job in the first place. They were usually full of doubts about whether to actually deliver the Lord's message to the people. Part of the reason for this insecurity was that prophets were often beaten and jailed and martyred. And at the very least, they had difficult and often isolated lives. This is because the messages from God were usually not the ones that people particularly wanted to hear. You know the old saying about how people seem to always want to kill the messenger of unwanted news. There was another facet to this predicament as well. Prophets understood God's sovereignty to a point that we generally don't. They knew full well that God might send them a message that if the people didn't stop doing thus and so, that God was going to destroy them. The prophets also understood that it was God who would determine if the people complied. So the Lord didn't much consider the views of humans who merely stood back and observed and reported on it. So like the story of Jonah at Nineveh, Jonah was concerned that the people of Nineveh might actually listen to God's ultimatum. Repent in their hearts, invisibly to humans, but exactly what God was looking for, and avoid the prophecy of destruction that Jonah pronounced to them. The result would be that God would overturn his decision to annihilate the city and withhold his wrath. Now, from Jonah's standpoint, the prophecy of destruction that he preached then might not occur. That would have made him look like a false prophet in the people's eyes. You following this? And at the least, his own people wouldn't listen to him anymore. At worst, he might be executed for being a false prophet when he wasn't. He was so concerned about this prospect that he fled and tried to hide from God. God had to retrieve him. And then he threatened him to deliver the message to the people of Nineveh. All of this anxiety and trouble that Jonah faced was completely standard operating procedure for God's prophets in the Bible. And it's my contention that this pattern never changes. So be careful what you ask for. Let's understand. While being a prophet is a great and honorable thing, it's fraught with danger and difficulty. It's not something to be sought after. Telling someone what you believe is a word from the Lord for them is no trivial thing. 
And the Bible's prophets are the greatest example of that. I think we'll stop here and begin Deuteronomy 19 next week. See you next time.